Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 14. Psalm 14, maybe you're turning pages, maybe you're clicking, it doesn't matter. Just get there somehow. Psalm 14. The title of the message is The Great Need. I'm going to give it away here at the beginning. The great need is salvation from our sin. And I want to say again, as I did in the prayer, if there's somebody listening, at the end of this service, there's going to be an opportunity for you to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, but that does not have to wait until the end. There's not a, really a specific act that, that you have to perform in order to do that. It is, it is a trust. It's a, a belief. It's a heart change of direction. It's not physical. It's, 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 not a, it's not a prayer. It's not a coming down front. It's, it's what happens in your heart when you recognize that you're a sinner. You can confess those sins to Jesus and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I cannot do anything about it because you probably already know that you can't. And then you believe the gospel message that I'm going to share here in a few minutes from Psalm 14. You believe that message and, and internalize it and say, God, I, I believe this. I, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that his death was, was my death. I believe that he took my sin and he took my punishment on that cross. And then I believe that three days later, this morning, early this morning, he rose from the dead, and the ladies went to that tomb, and, and he wasn't there. He was gone, and, and went and told the disciples he's not there, and then Jesus shows up and says, yeah, I'm not there, because here I am. He rose to prove that what he said about his power over death and sin were true, was true. He, he, was, he was telling us the truth. He was God in the flesh. He was able to do what he said he would do, and he did it. If we believe that, if we, if we internalize that, if we take that and make it our own, we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation, then the Bible says we, we confess it. We, 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 we choose to follow him. Confession is not just a vocal thing, it's a life thing. So we choose to follow Jesus. And you can do that right now, wherever you are, on your couch, at your breakfast table, in the car, you can do that before I preach the message. If, if, if that is something that, that God is working on your heart, has been working on your heart, and this morning you're just, it, it finally clicks for you, message in to us. We would love to hear that. Tom is on uh, either Facebook or YouTube. We can, we're monitoring both places. So if there's something that you want to, sh- want to share, go ahead and share it. There's no waiting. There's no need to put it off. It's not necessary to wait to the end of the service. But if you don't do it now, and you feel the Holy Spirit's leading, you feel this is something you need to do, then I pray by the end of the service, you will have made the decision to follow Jesus. Psalm chapter 14 tells us is a psalm of David. It's a a wisdom psalm. Um, I'll read it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see 
If there is one who is wise, one who seeks God, all have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Well, evildoers never understand. They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. Then, at that time, they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. As I said, this is a a wisdom psalm, the last couple of psalms we've looked at, and actually the majority of the psalms from chapter 3 on are laments, psalms of laments, psalms of, of mourning, of expressed pain and, and hurt and, and crying out to God usually to, to do something about the pain and the hurt that the uh, psalmist is writing about. This psalm is a little different, and, and, and there will be a few psalms after this that, that carries this, this theme, or a different theme than, than lament. This is a wisdom psalm. Now, there's a little lament in it in verses 4 through 6. There's praise at the end of verse 7, but the, the, the psalm as a whole comes across as a wisdom psalm. Uh, a wisdom psalm would be, y'all, understand the reality of life. Understand that uh, you, you should know this. This is something you should get. That's the point of the wisdom psalm. Now, it's appropriate that it's wisdom. It's appropriate uh, this, this morning that we talk about wisdom. But this psalm in particular, it, beginning the way it does, it's appropriate that it's wisdom because we're going to read later on that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the psalm begins with what should be fearful uh, to us. I mean, the fear should certainly be the result of believing there's no God. That should result in fear. If, if we look around at all that goes on and we say, there's no God in this, oh my heavens, what's the point? If, if, we, if there is no crucifixion, if there is no cross, if, if, there, if there is no salvation, all of this is futile. And I'm not just talking about the building and the songs and all this. I'm talking about all of life. If, if there is no certain end to all of this, if there's no God that holds all this in his hand, I want off. I don't know if the whole thing, life is hopeless, but if there is a God, then we need not fear. But if there is a God, then that wisdom that, that, that comes from that fear it will be knowing what our greatest need is and who can meet that need. Wisdom, uh, uh, fear of God, we, we begin with the idea that he's, whew, he's big, he's something we need to fear this 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 God that we worship. But that's going to lead us to understand if, if he can, if he's that, if he's everything, if he's the creator, if he is all-powerful, all-seeing, then we should 
right? Listen to what he says, and he will tell us that our greatest, what our greatest need is. That'll be clear to us from life and from Scripture. And then from Scripture, we will find out what or who can meet that need. And then we, as believers, lament for those who refuse God. Wisdom is, it does result in lament. Knowing God should result in us lamenting the fact that there are those who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But then we praise. We praise God for the offer of salvation that all who will come to Jesus will be saved. That's it. That's all you have to do. Come to Jesus and believe. That's Psalm 14 for us. Psalm 14 begins with the great problem. And the great problem is sin. Verses 1 through 4 tell us what our great problem is. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The root of sin, the root of every sin is the belief that God doesn't exist, doesn't care, or doesn't matter. We could probably find some other roots in there, but I think those three probably cover most of the reasons we would sin. God does not exist, God does not care what I do, or God does not matter in my life. And we find the root of sin there. But what we also find is that, the, that sin is the great cause of all pain, all heartache, all difficulty, all brokenness. We look at life and we see problems that we can't come up with answers for. Things that we can't fix. We, we look around and we see Death and destruction and pain and heartache and there's just nothing to do for it. We, we can't fix it. We, we try and as we have seen in the past, generally our attempts to fix it just lead to more brokenness. Sin is the great cause of all of that. But not only is sin the great cause of those what we would call natural results of, of life, the, the, just the, the, the pains that we all experience in life. Sin is the great cause of all corruption, vile deeds, evil, foolishness. And this, is, this foolishness is not the foolishness I used to get in trouble uh, for, for doing from my grandmother. Oh, stop the foolishness. This is foolishness of denying God. It is the fool that denies God. This is not the absence necessarily of wisdom as we would think of it. It is the absence of loving kindness. It is the absence of that uh, penitent, loving response to God and then that loving kindness that we are given, infused with when we come to Christ. The fool says, the, the, one who, the, the, the fool is the one who denies God. Sin is the great cause of that. Sin is the great cause of turning from God. So on the one hand, we have the brokenness. 
And we have, on the other hand, we have the evil. And many times those things overlap. Uh, it's, it's a Venn diagram, but it's one of those Venn diagrams instead of a circle's kind of overlapping and there's a little place in the middle of the sin. Both those circles come together, uh, evil and brokenness, and they're all sin. It's just right there. The great problem is sin. And, and, and when he says, when the psalmist says that it is the fool who says in his heart there's no God, again, like I said, this is not the foolish. This is not the fool like in a, uh, in a courtroom, a, a king's court. The fool is what tells the jokes. The, the fool is what takes the brunt of the jokes. The fool is what makes everybody laugh and, and uh, takes their mind off of things or uh, presents satire. It's not that kind of foolish. The fool can be the most brilliant, engaging, riveting, and charismatic person you can know. But that person is a fool, foolish if he denies God. Stephen Hawking, brilliant, denied God. He's a fool. Neil deGrasse Tyson, brilliant, denies God. He's a fool. Your, your favorite Hollywood actor that, that can embody any character and you forget that that person is the actor I think maybe for our generation uh, the, the the one that comes to mind is Joaquin Phoenix uh, you go back a, a couple of generations and you get Marlon Brando if they deny God their charisma the, the brilliant ability to entertain and to do things that we're just amazed at. They are fools if they deny God. We can think of musical talent. These folks that can, you know, composers from the classical period to the most incredible guitarists today. And, and, and we think of their abilities and we think that we see them as God-given gifts. They see them as talent, something they developed, something they earned. And we look at it, we understand it as uh, engaging and riveting and think, how can they be so good? And they are fools if they deny God. It's not about ability and intelligence. It is about denying the Lord. The fool doesn't seek God because he doesn't think he needs God. That's what the scripture says. There's no one who does good. The Lord is, in verse 2, he looks for someone who, can, who is seeking God and he finds that all of them have turned away. The fool doesn't do good. There is no one, verse 3, who does good, not even one. The fool doesn't do good no matter his acts. I mean, hear me on this. This is, this is hard to grasp. It is hard for us to understand. We, we know of people who do not believe in God, who do not trust, have not trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and we look at the things that they do, and we say, wow, those are good things. And in 
an aspect, in one aspect or two, maybe at the most, it is good. But the truth of the matter is, because those acts aren't founded in a relationship with God, those acts truly aren't good. Not as the scriptures would define good. Their motives are not pure. No matter their stated motives, without an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, their purpose can never be a godly purpose. Can God use those things to perform his will? Yes, he can. He does that throughout scripture, using uh, ungodly people to do his will. But that does not mean that what they were doing was good. Good only comes from the Lord, the fool does not do good. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then in verse 4, God speaks. A little different for Psalms. It doesn't happen, it happens some, but not a lot that God actually speaks in a psalm. And in verse 4, he does. He says in verse 4, will evildoers never understand They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. It's God. He can speak of himself in the third person if he wants to. See, God speaks in verse 4, and verse 4 is the beginning of the lament. Hear this. It is God lamenting. It is God mourning over the fools who say he doesn't exist. It is God mourning over those that would deny him. God mourns the lostness of his very special creation. He created everything and he said it was good. He created humanity and he said it was very good. Special creation. The earth will be redeemed someday. The the physical earth itself... The, the ecosystems, the, the, all, all of that will, will be redeemed someday. The earth groans for his return and it will be redeemed someday. It will be made perfect. But God did not send a savior to the trees, to the plants, to the rocks, to the animals, to the birds, to the reptiles, to the fish. God only sent a savior to his special creation, humanity. All of creation will benefit from that, but the Savior came to people because God mourned the lostness of people, his special creation. God mourns the obduracy, the the stubbornness, the obstinacy, the intransigence of the foolish, those who refuse to acknowledge him. Notice that it is people who, fools are those who refuse to acknowledge God. These are those that the first chapter of Romans talks about, that say, where it says that they saw creation. They looked around and there was nothing, there was no way they could get away from the very truth and reality of a creator. Many of them then chose to Replace the creator in their worship with the created, Romans will say. But Psalm 14 tells us that many of them just rejected the entire idea of a creator altogether and chose nothing. Said in their heart, there is no God. 
and that lament, verse 4, actually going back much, much further to the beginning of, the time, of time, it was always God's plan. But in verse 4, we see the impetus for the cross. The mourning led to a plan. In, in, in God's universe outside of time, there is no before and after. There's no mourning leads to a plan. It's mourning and plan. But stick with me here. Let's personify it just a little bit, anthropomorphize it just a bit so we can understand it. The, the mourning that God had led him to want a plan to save his special creation. And that plan was the cross. That plan, he knew, had to involve a way to defeat sin. The mourning led to the plan to defeat sin, right? Our great, the great cause is sin. The great problem that we have is sin. And God had to play, had to, in, 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 uh, in, in planning a way to take care of the sin problem, he had to include the result of sin. The great result is judgment. Verses 5 and 6. God knew the result. God knew what would come from sin. God knew that here's the problem and here's what's going to happen at the end of the problem. And therefore God came up with the plan to fix the judgment result. Then they will be filled with dread, he says, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. We see judgment in these two verses. We see that the end of the foolish, that is, he or she that denies God, is a face-to-face with God's divine wrath. That's the end result of the foolish, those that would say, There is no God, whether they say there's no God because they don't think he exists, they don't think he's concerned, or they don't think he matters, does not matter. Their end result is the same. We use the phrase often a come-to-Jesus meeting when it doesn't really have anything to do with Jesus. In this case, the end result of sin, of denying God, is a very literal come-to-Jesus meeting. It is not a question of when you will bow or if you will bow the knee to Jesus. It is only a question of when. Will you do it this side of death or will you do it the other side of death? If you bow the knee to Jesus now, you will bow the knee later, but you will bow it in joy and reverence and worship and for eternity with him. But if we fail to bow the knee to Jesus now, then after death, we will bow the knee in judgment and in uh, obeisance to what the final authority and the final verdict is. And that final verdict is an eternity in hell without God or Christ. That is is the result. The choice then is only when you will bow the knee, not if. But going back to the passage, they will be filled with dread, 
for God is with those who are righteous. If God is with the righteous, then it stands to reason he is against the foolish. Again, the true opposite of the fool is righteousness, not smarts. It's not smarts that make you saved. It's not smarts that make you good. It is righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot be righteous on your own. It is the righteousness of God that you take on yourself upon believing in Jesus Christ. God is against the foolish if he is with the righteous. The the next verse says, the Lord is his refuge, the refuge of the oppressed. If God is the refuge of the oppressed, then he is the battlement against the oppressor. He is the opposite. So if he's with the, uh, the, the righteous, and he is the refuge of the oppressed, then he is against the foolish and the battlement against the, the oppressor. The result of the life of the foolish sinner is judgment. Apart from Christ, apart from God, an enemy of God. Enemy is, uh, judgment is passed on the enemy of any victor. You, there, there are terms. It is rare that a surrender is accepted from an enemy where everything just immediately gets to go back to normal. No uh, negative consequences, no judgment. Instead, what we often find is unconditional surrender. Where you don't have any rights. If we give you something, it's by our own mercy and grace. But you are just about to give up everything because you lose, we win. That is the relationship between the fool who says there is no God and the righteous God who will stand in judgment over unbelievers someday. By the way, over judgment, stand in judgment over believers as well. But our judgment as believers will be for our acts and actions at believers. It will, as believers, it will not be a judgment of heaven or hell. Our eternity is secure in Christ. But as God stands over the foolish sinner at the end of his life, the result is judgment with only one consequence, and that is an eternity in hell. The final verse, though, shows us that our great need is salvation. The great problem is sin. The great result is judgment, verses 5 and 6. The great need is salvation in verse 7. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let me remind you that Judaism... Israel was looking for a political uh, victor, someone to lead Israel to prominence again, to rule the world. The, the king of the world would sit on a throne in Jerusalem. That was I, their idea. That was their plan. And what David asked for here is for that to happen some thousand years or so before it did That's what David was looking for. Lord, come, send your uh, deliverance from Zion. And that's what they expected last Sunday, right? Palm Sunday that we talked about. That's when they celebrated the triumphal entry. He's here. 
The king is riding on his colt. He's coming. He's on the donkey. This is coming, the, the, the general coming in, having won, having defeated. Peace is here because politically and militarily we have won. That's what he is asking for. But we, we know the whole story, right? We see in this passage the writer understands that as as the judgment comes from God, previous two verses, God is the judge, then if God is the judge, the only source for salvation, or as this passage puts it, deliverance, is also God. In in a surrender, J.R. this morning talked about World War II and the unconditional surrender of Japan to uh, the U.S., Any concessions that were given were given at the mercy of the victor. Any way that they could recompense the world at that point for their actions, Japan, it was only allowed should the victor, the U.S. and the allies, allow it. In the same way, but on a much grander cosmic scale... If God is the judge of the foolish, then only God can offer the source for salvation and deliverance. It has to come from him. This means that there aren't many paths to God. If God has not said, this is a path to me, this is a way to experience my salvation, this is a way to escape judgment, if God has not provided that way, it's not a way. God's not sitting on a mountain with various paths labeled Islam and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and, and, and Elvisism and Judaism and all these other possibilities of a way to get to God. That, that's not the way it works. There is one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. There's one path to God, not many. God sets the standard. If he is the judge, he sets the conditions for mercy. Those that sang this song 900 years ago, oh no, I'm sorry, 2,900 years ago in 900 BC, they only had the promise of a righteous one coming. That's what they're singing about. Oh, that someday the righteous one would come. At this time, they relied on the blood of animals to justify them. But we know from Hebrews, our D group reading, right, that the blood of animals can't justify. It was a shadow It was a stopgap measure until the real thing came. Many in those days believed their works could save them. It's no different today. But works can't save us. If they knew their scriptures, if they listened to their prophets, if they followed what God said, they knew that one day a promise was coming. And that was the only hope they had, that promise of a Messiah, their Savior, their Deliverer, verse 7 says. The great need is salvation. Psalm 14, the whole passage, is a great image of the progression of a believer. 
The beginning is the realization that the great cause is sin. The great problem is sin. Verses uh, 5 and 6 show us as believers and, and those searching for Jesus that the great result of our sin is judgment. And then we come to realize after this understanding of judgment that our great need is salvation. And that is a great place to be. That the edge of that third section. I recognize my sin. I know that judgment awaits. And I need a savior. But what a horrible place to leave somebody. And not tell them how they can be saved. So point number four this morning The great Savior is Jesus. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. As a matter of fact, if you go just stay there at the beginning of Romans 3, you see beginning in verse uh, 10 that Paul quotes much of Psalm 14 in Romans 3. We, We know the verse... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That that verse, Romans 3.23, is a a condensation of Psalm 14 that he quotes among among other verses from the Psalms in verses 10 through 18. But we see that the only, the great Savior is Jesus. Look at verses 21 through 26 with me. Of chapter 3, Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. The great Savior is Jesus. Verse 21 tells us that the righteousness of God is the answer to the great problem that is sin. The righteousness of God has been revealed. The righteousness of God. Can we be righteous on our own? The answer is no. There's none good. There's none righteous. We have to have the righteousness of God. That righteousness has been revealed. That answer to the sin problem has been revealed. The righteousness of God is the answer to the great problem that is sin. Verse 24 tells us the justification through Jesus Christ is the answer to the great result that is judgment. Do you hear those points from Psalms, uh, the Psalm? 
14. Verse 24 says, they are justified freely by his grace. Justified is a courtroom term. An easy way to remember its meaning is to uh, understand that it means just as if I'd never sin, sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That is the verdict in the courtroom on those who believe in Christ, who trust Jesus for their salvation. So all those things in, verse, in uh, verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 14 are done away with. The evil, the corruption, the brokenness, all of those problems are taken care of because of justification through Jesus Christ. A legal verdict where in the courtroom God says, you are clean. That's the answer. That is the, uh, yeah, the answer to the great result that is judgment. And if you haven't figured it out yet, great does not mean good here. Great means major. Should have said that at the beginning. But Michael, we've still got a problem. You've got the answer to my sin. You have justification that takes care of judgment. But don't leave us there, right? We need a savior. The great need is a savior. Verse 25. God presented him, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. People, our great Savior is Jesus. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus is the answer to the great need that is salvation. Atoning. Another way to remember, uh, to atone for something is to make up for it, to, to, to fix it. But scripturally, it's more than just that. It's another way to remember it. It's uh, 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 to atone or atonement is at one meant. You, you are made as one with Christ. Atonement means that when God looks at me, Pre-salvation, pre-trust in Jesus, he sees my sin. He sees who I am in relation to his goodness, and I am far, far from it no matter how hard I try. But atonement, at one meant, means I am one with Christ. I am united with Christ. The letters of Paul cover this in great detail. But I am made one with Christ. Therefore, when God sees me, post-salvation, post-belief in Jesus Christ as my Savior, what God sees when he looks at me is Christ. I get Jesus' righteousness. The righteousness of God, as Paul says here, that was in Jesus, that was shown in Jesus. I get that. That's my account. I've used this analogy before about bank accounts. You don't want people using my bank account as the standard. If we're going to use somebody's bank account as the standard, we want Jeff Bezos, the owner of, of, of Amazon. We want um, Tesla, not the man, Nicola. Elon Musk. We want his bank account. We want Bill Gates' bank account. We want that to be the standard. 
in salvation, it is not my righteousness that's the bank account because Paul says in other places, my righteousness is filthy rags. I get Jesus' righteousness. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus. I know I ain't Jesus, but I'm made one with him. And his righteousness is credited to my account, atonement, at one mint. I am one with him. And the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is the answer to the great need that is salvation. That's great, right? This is another horrible place to leave us. Don't leave us on that cliff. I've got the uh, answer to the problem of sin. I've got the response to the judgment that is coming because of my unrighteousness. I see the Savior. We've been given the Savior. We have the atoning sacrifice, but now what? Verse 26. He would be right. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous. Jesus was perfect, son of God. So that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. I am declared righteous by what? My works? My efforts? No. My following the law, my doing the right things, my church membership, my tithing, my correct doctrine, my calling myself a certain thing, my, my uh, uh, sincerity when I read scripture, none of those things save me. I am declared righteous by one thing, my faith in Jesus. So we come to the what should I do? This morning, there are got four points that you should do. Number one, admit you're a sinner. <laughs> a great one at that. A great sinner. Again, I don't mean good. I mean, you're good at it. I, I kind of do mean that. You're good at sinning, uh, but you are, you, you are a spectacular at sinning. You are a tremendous sinner. I mean it. You're one of the best. You're a tremendous sinner. You're a tremendous sinner. We all are. None of us are good. Not one. So this morning, admit that. That's harder for some of us to do than we might imagine. I'm, no, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. No, you're not. You, you stink. You're, you're, you're awful. You're, you're, you carry the stench of lawlessness and enmity as an enemy of God. You're not good. You are a sinner. So admit that today. Understand, secondly, that your end is judgment. You will be judged. Best I understand it, there's going to be two of them. First, there will be a judgment where the sheep and the goats are separated. Those who have trusted Christ to an eternity in torment, uh, rather, nope, sorry, that's bad theology. Those who have trusted Christ to an eternity with him in God's presence 
Knowing as we are known, seeing the face of Jesus, the hands that took the nails, the shoulders that bore our sin, the body that suffered our punishment, we get to see him. Because why? Because he's raised. Good news, tomb's empty, he's not there. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. We get to be with him. The the lost, the unrighteous, the fool who said there is no God, for whatever reason is bound for an eternity of judgment. And that judgment, well, you're going to be judged against a standard. And that standard is going to be Christ. And when we get to that moment, God will look at believers and he will see Jesus. At one minute, atonement. He will see that we and Christ are one, and we get the credit of Jesus' account of righteousness. And the lost person, the unbeliever, will see or will hear the account taken of his life, and the standard will be the same righteousness, God's righteousness, There will be no account of Jesus to your account. No credit of Jesus to your account. And if you believe that you are as good as God, well, Scripture says you're a fool. And you will suffer an eternal punishment. So understand that that is your end. Admit you're a sinner. Understand that your end is judgment. And then Believe on Jesus Christ for your salvation. That that is not the end. It's not insurmountable. It is not something that can't be fixed. Jesus' death atoned for you, and his resurrection proved his victory over sin and death. It was guaranteed. And it is easy as belief. I know that doesn't seem right. I've got to do something. No, you don't. If you skip down to chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work, the one who does not do the good works, does not fulfill these things of the law, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Belief is not a work. You do not have to work for your salvation. As a matter of fact, you can't. You cannot do it. You cannot make it. You only must believe. And then the fourth point is confess Jesus as your Savior. I know the alphabet doesn't go A, U, B, C, but whatever. Confess Jesus as your Savior. Accept him and follow him. Give your life to him. Receive him by faith. There are a lot of phrases we use, but they all mean the same thing. Confess Jesus as your Savior. And really, none of these are steps. It's not, well, I first must admit, then I must believe, then I must confess. No, it's, it's a moment. It's an understanding. I need Jesus. We live in time. We, we have steps when we do things. But it is that moment when your heart believes that you are saved. Not an aisle walk, not a baptism. We want you to be baptized, but that's not what saves you. That is obedience to what you do in your heart. This morning, you can be saved. And that's what you should do this morning. Admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And choose to follow him. Trust him. 
place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. It can be as simple as a prayer. If that solidifies it for you, pray something like that. I'm a sinner. God, I don't want the judgment that is mine. I want Jesus Christ. I believe that he is who he says he is. And Lord, I choose to follow you today. Save me. It is that simple. God answers the cry of the penitent fool who's looking for salvation through Jesus Christ. It is that easy. And I pray this morning that that is what you would do. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for an empty tomb that guarantees our salvation. We thank you for a Savior who died on the cross, taking our sin and our punishment. We thank you that in the courtroom of God, upon faith in Jesus Christ, we are, de- ju- we are justified just as if I'd never sinned. We are declared completely innocent of all wrongdoing because our account gets all of Jesus' righteousness. We are one with Christ. We are atoned for. We are paid for. We and he are unified, and when you look at us, you see him, and that stays your hand of wrath. Lord, thank you for that promise, and God, I pray that those listening and watching this morning, if they have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, they would pray a simple prayer, a simple heart cry. It doesn't even have to be out loud, but a turn in their heart from their old way to Christ. And God, save them, because you will. That is your promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I pray that you have made some decision for Christ, and you need to respond in some way. Maybe you need to accept Christ, and I've explained to you how you can do that. And Maybe you'd like to be baptized. You've accepted Christ, but you've never followed in obedience. Again, baptism doesn't save you, but it is the next step. It's really the first obedience as a believer. Tell us, let us know, message us on Facebook, send us an email, and we would love to set that up. It, it will be a little while, but first Sunday, what a great Sunday to come back to have multiple baptisms. Maybe as a believer, you hear more of yourself in Psalm 1 through 4 than you do in any other portion. You, you know your life's not where it needs to be. You need to recommit lead a life of holiness, return to Christ. You need to make some changes in your life. Now's the time to do that. Maybe God's calling you to use you in some way. Maybe you want to join First Baptist Church. You don't join by walking an aisle. You join by uh, becoming a member. We, we have steps that you take to, to uh, be a member of our church through a, a, a discovery class where you learn about our church and you see how you can be involved if you want to be a member of our church, we can actually handle that online and, you know, until the next uh, family meeting where we get together and we rejoice as people join us. Maybe you have some other decisions you just want to ch- share with us. Do that online. Let us know what God is doing in your heart. Comment, send us a message, call us, email us, whatever you need to do, but make a decision for him today. We're going to worship with one more song, give you a, a few minutes to reflect on the message today. Maybe this will be your opportunity to send us a message and let us know what God is doing in your heart.